Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Through our series on Romans, we, we went through Romans for a while, took a break, and now we're back for the second half of Romans. And uh, I got to say, uh, let me, I want to walk you through something. This is a good this is a good example of something they ask you in preacher interviews. Um, I, don't know, I don't know how much we talked about this when I interviewed here, but this is something that's kind of a, uh, there's two kind of different groups of preachers. Uh, uh, let me explain this. Um, the way it works is they'll ask you, how do you decide what you're going to preach on? And you've got half the group that basically are like, I am a topic person. I think of a topic, and then I, I structure a series on that topic. And I've done that maybe a kind of a little bit. Um, but the idea would be like, I want to talk about what it means to be a Christian in the workplace. And so they do like six sermons called Christians at Work or God at Work or something like that. And they come up with passages from Scripture that talk about God at Work. The other half of preachers are what you would call textual sermon is that's how they get their sermon they basically say i'm going to do first john and then i'm going to do deuteronomy and then i'm going to do exodus and then i'm going to do matthew and that you, you you following with me i am kind of one of those people that's a textual person and that's not because one's right and one's wrong it's more because i think first of all it now that i'm starting out I'm 30 years old, so I don't really know how much I should be trusting my judgment on, well, here are some topics that we need to talk about. Whereas, like, once maybe I've gotten a little wiser, I can think of some topics. But at my age, I feel like it's really been good for me just to go, you know what? We're going to go through Romans. You know what? We're going to go through John. We're going to go through this. And the reason why this is important to me, too, is when you do that, I've, I have had times in my ministry where people have asked me, why aren't you talking about this topic? Everyone in the world is talking about this topic. Why aren't you talking about it? And what I always say is, I say, well, I don't see the pulpit as the place where Drew tells you what he thinks about the topic going on, okay? So when the, the stuff happens around the world and everybody's talking about it on Facebook or talking about it together, I don't think this pulpit is the place where Drew comes up here and tells you based on all my vast wisdom what I think about the topic, okay? But what I do say is, but guess what? There's a catch to that too. There are going to be times when I'm going through a book of the Bible that a topic comes up that I would not have picked. You following me? Where something arises from the text where I go, oh no. I've got to talk about this because I'm going through the text, and today is one such passage, okay? So today we're going to be talking about Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, which in many ways is about as divisive of a passage as you can possibly find. I've, I've looked at it all week, I've studied it, and frankly, of all, all the sermons I've done in a while, this was the one I pr probably put off the most working on it because of how much I just didn't want to figure out what I'm supposed to say about this passage. And so my biggest goal today, I don't think this is one, one of those sermons that I'm going to put on my top five list of, uh, you know, of these are the best, these are the home runs. Next time I get asked to preach at church camp, I'm not going to be pulling up Romans 13. But I do think we're going through Romans. We need to read it. We need to have a healthy view of it. And frankly, uh, let's try to, as best we can, maybe learn the most important lesson we might learn today is not only how to view this passage in a healthy way, but maybe is how to not use it in an unhealthy way. Following me? Okay. 
Romans 13, if you want to turn in your Bibles. And you can follow along on the screen if you'd like to. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Let that sink in. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. I, uh, uh, let's keep reading. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do what right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. I'm going to leave this line here for a second. I have heard many sermons on wives submit to your husbands. I have not heard many sermons on all of you should submit to the government. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Okay, so wait. This is, this is, I put this as the main thing. This is the thing that, like, Drew's voice, as I'm reading this, thinks, and many of you are probably thinking, wait, does that mean that the American Revolution was, like, a bad thing? Because there was a whole lot of rebelling against the governing authorities in the American Revolution. Is our whole country founded on, well, let's not look at Romans 13 for two seconds so we can rebel against England. Um, and uh, is, that, is that the case? Should July 4th be a thing where it's like, well, we... We, we rebelled against the authorities. Or an even harder question, probably the hardest question, all this stuff about God appointing leaders, did God appoint Stalin as leader? Did God handpick Hitler to be the leader of Germany? Hey, don't, don't push back against Hitler. God picked him. He appointed him. That's hard for me to swallow. I don't really like that. Recently, uh, recently an attorney general of our country quoted Romans 13 in one of his speeches to defend some actions that the government was doing. And all I could think during the speech was, would you be quoting, submit to the government, if the other party had won the election? There's a lot of people that have no problem quoting Romans 13 when the person they want to be president is president. Hey, listen, y'all, the Bible says you need to submit to the leader. But the second that the other party is president, you are nowhere near Romans 13. Right? Nodding with me? Okay. So, the first clue, and this, this slide right here, remember the context, could be in every sermon I ever do the rest of my life. Okay? Everything we read in the Bible, when we do church the way we do church, where a person comes up here, picks seven verses, and talks to you about them, what happens is we act like the Bible are these segmented episodes, these one-off messages, and they're not. This whole passage that we're reading is within a context of the letter of Romans. The letter of Romans is within a context of the canon of Scripture. Okay? You following me? So we've got to always remember, when we're reading anything, 
never to take it out of context. Now, there are times, and I've said this in class, there are times where when you read the verse, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that the verse just by itself is the same message as the verse in context. But there are plenty of times where the verse in its context is not the same as the message when we just pick it out of context, okay? So first context thing you need to know if you're a note taker. This letter was written to Christians in ancient Rome. Ancient Rome had an emperor. By the way, the emperor was Nero. Now, if any of you grew up hearing that Nero was the big bad emperor, he hasn't become the bad emperor yet when this letter was written. Okay, keep that in mind. He's not killing Christians yet. So the persecution angle is not really there currently. Also, another thing you need to remember, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but Christians in Rome probably took up about 1% of the population. Maybe 0.001% of the population of Rome were Christians. Just keep that in mind when we're thinking about how this passage applies to us today, where in our country you could argue 48% of our country claims to follow Christ, something like that. I don't know what the statistics would be. Okay, that's context. That's important. Also, by the way, in this context, a lot of people don't like Christians, really don't like them, because they're messing things up for the city. I've said this before, but when you are in a pagan culture, the way they see it is like when bad things happen, it's because people aren't making their vows to their gods and offering sacrifices to the gods like they should. The, the no rain that we've had for the past, well, we've had rain the last two weeks, three weeks, but this huge spell of no rain, if we were living in a pagan culture, everyone would be going door to door going, have you not sacrificed to the rain god recently? What is up? Like, seriously, somebody here in town is not paying the, the dues to the rain god, okay? That's why Christians weren't liked, because none of the Christians were going to the festivals paying their dues to the gods. Okay, this letter also is not called, this is context point number two, this letter that we are reading is not called Paul's Manifesto on Christian Stance Towards Government, okay? I think Paul would be a little shocked at the way in which people take this seven verses and say, this is Paul's entire view of government. That would not be, that would not be appropriate. Now. We need to take what he's saying seriously. But he is not sitting down to write a theology of Christian politics. What is he writing? A letter to Christians in Rome. And that gives me the third point, which is the most important point. This passage is not randomly inserted in here. It is in a, a set of passages. So let me remind you where we are. Paul in Romans 12 says, Offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. You can imagine how some people would think, Oh, so if I'm living just for God... Do I really have to pay any attention to the government anymore? Do I have to pay taxes? Do I have to? Because, I mean, my whole life's for God now. And then Paul says, this is what it means to look, this is what it looks like to offer your body as a living sacrifice. Romans 12, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. I'm going to skip around. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Later, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right. Skipping ahead. Uh, we have, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we've got all this love language. And then after the passage we just read, it says, let no debt remain outstanding except, continuing, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there is can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment, fulfillment of the law. 
So everything that we read in this passage, we need to keep in mind, is nestled between topics of how do you love the people in your church family, how do you love outsiders, your neighbors, how do you as a Christian love and interact with the government, and how do you love each other. It's nestled in a conversation on love, okay? So there's my context spiel as I try to wrap my mind around this passage. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and articulate what I think Paul was trying to say to the people in Rome. By the way, it's probably a lot more simple than we make this passage to be. And then I'm going to try and articulate to you what I think the message is for us in Clifton today. Okay? That's it. That's the rest of the sermon. By the way, I remembered sitting here and it like 20 minutes ago being like, man, I feel really hungry. I don't normally feel hungry right now. And it's like, oh wait, it's because in my mind it's 11.50 right now, not, not 10.50. So... For any of you who are hungry, um, Jesus is the bread of life. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, um, man cannot live on bread alone. All right, so what is Paul communicating? Oh, wait, here we go. What is Paul's message for the church in Rome? The first thing that you have to see throughout all this is that Paul sees it very clear that God is sovereign over everything that happens. You cannot diminish this is something that's so hard for us in our free will, free will culture. By the way, I do believe there is free will. But I think that for Paul, the idea of free will is so different than our idea of free will because of the incredible extent to which he believes everything that goes on in our world, God is over and above. And everything that goes on in our world is subordinate to God as the greatest sovereign Lord. Daniel, we just did this Daniel series, is going to help us a ton with talking about this idea of sovereignty. In Daniel 4, verse 17, I guess I didn't put it as a slide, it says... The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowest of people. Anybody who's in charge, just know that God is the one that's really in charge. Daniel throughout is full of these passages of these kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon, thinking I'm Nebuchadnezzar, I'm the big dog in charge, and Daniel going, you're not really. But, don't forget, you see Daniel in this story, and Daniel and his friends finding this balance, this question of, what does it look like for me to, I am still subservient to this kingdom of Babylon, and yet I know that you're not the true king. Does that make sense? That would be in Paul's mind throughout all this. This idea of God's sovereignty, this idea of the leaders being in charge, is something where Paul is more making the point of, hey, God is, well, God is over all this. And when you choose to be someone who says, I'm going to disregard everything that's in my place, in some ways you're disregarding what Paul believes God has set up. Okay? I didn't say this was easy to chew on. I'm saying it's something to chew on. I also will tell you, I'm doing a lot to try and soften this passage because I know for a lot of people the idea of submitting to the government is a very yikes kind of thing. I'm trying to soften it, but I also want you to realize if it makes you feel uncomfortable, that's probably right. <laughs> Most of the time when I'm preaching, if the message is, that's a little uncomfortable, then you're feeling it, okay? If you're like, oh, this is easy peasy, I'm probably preaching bad, okay? All right, number two, a big thing that Paul is communicating, probably the most important thing, I'm going to span out just a little bit. I'm going to step back a little bit and go to the first page of the Bible. First page of the Bible. In the beginning, there were these chaotic, I'm going to give you a big nerd word, these chaotic primordial waters. And we're told that the Spirit comes and hovers, hovers over the waters of the deep. And our God comes 
and creates order out of the chaos, okay? And we see from the very first pages of the Bible, a big theme is, I am the God, not of these, not these Mesopotamian gods that you worship, like Marduk, who creates the world out of killing and blood pouring out of Tiamat, okay? These are all ancient Near Eastern creation accounts. My God is a God who comes and looks at the chaos and creates order. And when he creates humans, he tells them, I have created you to reign and rule with me, to be co-rulers. And part of that means I need you to partner with me in ruling this world, in ordering this world. I am not a God of anarchy. I am a God of order. And so for Paul, this idea of God being a God of order, I think part of what you're supposed to see is I need you to realize that no matter what you're doing, I care about the order. And so if you are living as a Christian in Rome and you're not paying your taxes and you're doing all sorts of things that are just kind of rubbing against the order, you're not helping my cause because I'm a God who appreciates and wants the order, okay? So that's the, the second thing that I think Paul is trying to say to these Romans. The real bottom line of all this that I think is so crazy is it would be a juicier sermon topic if I had titled this sermon, Paul's Theology of Politics, and we could have a big old debate. But Romans 13 is pretty simple. Help keep order in your communities by paying your taxes, not being in debt, by submitting to what's going on, because our communities will crumble if anarchy reigns, so be good citizens. That's a pretty, pretty simple takeaway, right? I could have summarized this whole passage as, as hey, be good citizens. In, your, in the place that you live. Now, the reason why it's not that simple is because there's a lot of language of God's appointed these leaders. God is the one who is saying, you need to listen to these leaders because when you're not listening to them, you're not listening to me. I get it. It's all touchy. But when we ever, whenever we help create order, when we're good citizens, this is almost all that Paul is saying. Paul does not want the Christians who were regarded as the scum of the earth there in Rome to get an additional reputation as being troublemakers. No good will come to the cause of the gospel by followers of Jesus being regarded as crazy rebels who won't cooperate with the most basic social structures, like paying their taxes. Okay? Now let's talk about what this means for us today in Clifton, Texas. All right? I think the first two things still apply. I think, let me start with this. Be careful. This is a good message for you. Do not treat Romans 13 as something you can wield when you want to. Well, right now I like the president. Romans 13 says you better listen, okay? Don't wield it like that because guess what? The next time the president isn't somebody you like and someone says to you, what about Romans 13? You're like, ah, well, I mean, context. In the context of Romans, you know, okay? So be careful how you wield Romans 13. Number two, as I already said, we have a God of order, not of anarchy. Be good citizens. Be people that... Uh, Paul believes that Jesus is the true Lord of the world, and his followers should not pick these unnecessary quarrels with, I'm going to call, lesser lords, lesser leaders. They are in, we are, as Christians, a revolutionary community. But if we go for the normal type of violent revolution, of antagonistic revolution, then we will just be playing the empire back at its own game. As Paul said right before this passage, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We will not win by playing the empire back at its own games. They will, we will almost certainly lose, and much worse, the gospel itself will also lose in the process. Now I'm going to give you a, a thing that I think is the 
the key to all this, this is Drew inserting, this is probably not what Romans 13 is talking about, but since we're on the topic, this is me giving two cents of how we should think about this question of what does it mean to submit to the government? And Jesus is the one that gives us the best answer. In Mark, Jesus is approached and they ask him, do you think we should pay our taxes? And what does he say? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. The bottom line is Jesus, what did he didn't say? He didn't go, well, you know, everything that the government says to do, do it wholeheartedly. He doesn't say that. But he says, I'm, I'm trying to be, I'm someone who's participating in my community in the order that we have. And so I'm going to be a good citizen. Yet, if ever submission to government comes above submission to God, Jesus would never want you to do that. I'm going to render my citizenship as far as just being a good citizen. I'm going to do those things for my government. But my allegiance is always in submission to God. Submission to God trumps submission to government. Okay? Does that sound good? Now, one of the things that I think is also at play here is this idea of when we look at these leaders, I also would say Paul would be pretty disgusted at the way Christians in history have used Romans 13 to justify certain things because Paul is also pretty clear, and I think he gives out some boundaries here. You notice some of the places where it says, uh, some of these lines where it says, uh, let me find it. Um, Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. For rulers hold no terror on those who do right. He's saying in a good organized government, we all are grateful when our rulers find the murderer and put the murderer in jail, right? We're grateful for those structures that come around and say, hey, you did something bad, you killed someone, you stole something, you're going to jail. That's the, this, this wrath that's being talked about, the authorities keeping that order. We also need to recognize that we're not allowed to go, well, we don't want any of that government, and then go, well, actually we do. We do, we do want people who are going to make sure that our schools still have enough you know, tax money and our this and that. You can't, for God, he's saying, Paul is laying this groundwork of, in a good system, the people who are governing are doing what they can to create order, and you should listen to them. Because when you don't, you're gonna get in trouble, and when you do, things go smoothly. All of that is pretty predicated on the idea that these governments are not acting like beastly kingdoms of this world, like we see in Daniel, like we see in Revelation. I'm pretty sure Paul would say pretty wholeheartedly, and if you look at our Revelation class and you look at what Jesus says, when kingdoms of this world act out of line of God's will, there's plenty of times where God says, well, don't worry, they're not in charge, I'm in charge, and there will be consequences for this, okay? Jesus gives us this great line when he faces Pilate in John 17. John, Pilate is talking to Jesus and says, Do you refuse to, pe- to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answers something that Paul believes. Jesus says, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Even Jesus himself says, I believe you've received power. I believe you have authority. I believe God has given it to you. But your power is subservient to God. Your power is only power to the extent that it is in line with God. And I believe that Jesus would, whenever we, here's my clue for when we read this passage, and then I'm going to be done. Three words, in my opinion, that pop up over and over in this section. Sovereignty, submission, and selfless love. 
as you try and I try to wrestle with this idea of Romans 13, what, do I, what am I supposed to do today as a citizen in Clifton, as a citizen in Texas, in the United States of America? These three words should come to your mind. Sovereignty, sovereignty of God, submission, the word that we probably struggle with the most of this passage. If, if you're struggling with it, good, you should be. We need to find that line. And then this idea of selfless love, because before this section and after this section, all of it is about loving your neighbors. And part of that means, what does it look like to be a good citizen loving in our government? Okay? I believe these three words are also words that are worth picking because all of them remind me of Jesus. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he never loses track of God's sovereignty. He never loses track of his submission to following God's will and knowing, hey, part of my submission is I'm trusting that even if I get beat up by this government, God is still in charge of this. Part of submitting is not just saying I like, it's, it's not saying I like what's going on in the government. It's saying I know that the government doesn't have the answer at the end of all this. And I am going to be subservient knowing that God has got it. God's got it. His sovereignty is in charge. And I'm going to exemplify this selfless love. Jesus modeled these three things in his life. Romans 13, Paul seems to be talking about this a lot. Like I said, this is not a passage that I would have just like, mm, I'm feeling like preaching Romans 13. But I hope you uh, learned something from it. I hope that this is something we can use in the future. And like I said before, most importantly, it's something that we don't wield uh, and create spiritual Christian malpractice on people. So if any of you have any prayer requests, if any of you have anything, elders are going to be standing at the doors. And uh, I'd encourage you, if you want to wrestle with this more, I'd encourage you to come to Wednesday night class. Um, and that'll make one of us who wants to wrestle with this more. All right, y'all, uh, let's stand for this closing song.